overwhelming, surreal moment almost. And pretty much all the moments of my career since then have been, can't believe this is really happening, but it is happening. So I'm going to enjoy it and appreciate it. Fourth down and two. Going into the game, I knew they had some plays in the game plan where I could potentially touch the ball. It's December 16th, 2018. The Raiders against the Cincinnati Bengals in a seemingly forgettable game. But for Raiders tight end Darren Waller, this game meant everything. You know, it'd been like two years since I touched the ball in the game. That's because the NFL had suspended Waller while he was with the Baltimore Ravens after he says he tested positive for marijuana use. This was his second suspension from the team. I was like, you know, do I still got it or I don't know. Has he still got it? I mean, his career is riding on the answer to that question on this day in Cincinnati. Just a year earlier, Waller was stocking shelves at a grocery store while going through rehab. He wasn't sure if he'd ever play in the NFL again. Man, I feel like something something good could happen today. Who knows? The Raiders signed him less than three weeks earlier, and now Waller is hoping quarterback Derek Carr is going to give him a chance to get his hands on the ball. The person that I was in that play almost never gets the ball. Like, since I've been on the Raiders, nobody else ever got the ball at that position on that particular play. But I was running, and I guess, like, I kind of, like, outflanked the defense a little bit. And Derek was just like, he just saw me. It's like, here. Carr completes it. Caught it. And it's Waller. The key has to secure the catch first. And anytime you try to move before you catch it, that's, that's when drops happen all the time. You see a whole bunch of grass, like a wide open green grass in front of you, and you're kind of like, is this, are you serious? Like, is this really happening right now? But then it's just like, run. Down the sideline, Waller inside the five. And broke a tackle on the linebacker and just ran like I was running from a dog, put my head back and just ran, you know? And he is down at the one. That's all I remember. I remember getting tackled at the one, but just to have that moment was just like a, I'm meant to be here still. Like, it's not by accident. Waller was meant to be here. In the four years since he joined the Raiders, he has proven himself over and over again. He's now considered one of the best tight ends in the NFL. This is In the Moment from Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green. Every week, we go inside the mind of an athlete to relive one of the most important moments of their career. This week, Pro Bowl tight end Darren Waller, who has struggled to get where he is. Some people like me, I've always had to learn things the hard way. I've always had to, you know, get kind of humbled and kind of beat down a little bit by circumstances. Coming up after the break, how one of the worst times in Darren Waller's life led him to play his best football. What is actually going on with the economy nowadays? The price of gas? Inflation? Are we in a recession? I'm Jeff Guo, co-host of NPR's Planet Money. Come along with our super team of econ experts as we delve into the stories that show you how the world really works. That's Planet Money from NPR. Today is Darren Waller's 30th birthday. You know, there was a time when people might have wondered if he would make it this far because of his struggles with drug addiction. Waller grew up in Colorado and played for Georgia Tech before being drafted by the Baltimore Ravens in 2015. After going through two suspensions and rehab, the Raiders signed him in 2018. And since then, he has been on fire. Hard, it in and it's Waller. He spins into the end zone for the touchdown. 
Waller's broken franchise records. He's set career highs in receptions, receiving yards, receiving touchdowns. He's made these astounding plays on the field. Again, the four-man rush in the middle. Waller, he grabbed it. What a catch by Waller. And he's earned praise from around the league. Darren Waller is a... The Raiders may never get a tight end this good for 15 years, 20 years. Like, he's just not a guy that I would let go. And that Waller kid, he's a problem. He was just too big, too physical. So there are a bunch of moments Waller could talk about. But it's that day in Cincinnati in his comeback year that just stays with him. A reception for 44 yards that might seem ordinary to anyone watching. But for a guy climbing back from rehab and a suspension, that play can define the trajectory of his career. When you're a receiver and you know, or a tight end and you you make a catch, like you get it, you secure the ball. Does time slow down enough for you to feel good about that and be like, okay, I've the ball's in my hands, I've got it, I can run now. I mean, is it can you actually experience that or does it move too quickly? It's kind of like a little bit of both, you know. It's like, you know, things do kind of slow slow down. I notice a lot, like if I go back and look at something like I would thought like a moment moved a lot slower, but on film it just was like ping, 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 like really quick. So did you think you scored? No, nah, I think I knew I think I knew I was down just off of my knee, but you know, I was just more so excited that I got to touch it and make something happen and then we scored the next play. So I was just like, I'm contributing to the good that's happening around here. And it had been a while since I had felt that way. It looked like when you rolled into the end zone, even though you were stopped at the one, your your hands went up. Like it, it was almost like you were pointing to the sky. You got to sell it for a touchdown. I knew I wasn't in, but it's like kind of like <laughs> like NBA, like a flop, or like you got to sell the touchdown, even though you made. I think even though you're like I didn't get in, but I'm gonna sell it. Maybe the ref will be like, yeah, touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> so you can you feel like you can sometimes convince them? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you see people do that all the time. Like you'll see guys like guy make a toe tap catch on the sideline on the other team's sideline and you see the whole sideline's like no 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 he didn't catch it but it's like he clearly got two probably got three feet in so it's just like i don't know it's just a football thing do you remember anything that anyone said to you on the sidelines like teammates when you when you came back after that catch yeah i came back to the sideline everybody's like yeah some people were like oh man you couldn't score and some people were like great job but i remember this random old guy i don't don't know who he was he just came up to me and was just like, we haven't had anybody moving like that on our team in a little while. He's like, I didn't know who that was. I was like, who was that number 83? You caught that and you were just, Pew! like, so, and I was just, it was just funny. Cause I, but I was like, I don't know, just hearing that some dude that didn't even know who I was, just saw me out there. was just like, Oh no, nah, we ain't seen nothing like that around here in a while. I figured I was doing something right. I'm trying to gain confidence back and just grow, you know, and, it's always hard. It's always been hard for me to really been truly confident in myself and like really own that confidence. And so to hear that from him, I'm just like, wow, like, you know, like kind of like how do I start seeing that in myself? So it's kind of grown since. Last season, I mean, from the outside, it seemed like an awfully tumultuous, stressful year for the Raiders organization. We have some breaking sports news. John Gruden is out as coach of the Las Vegas Raiders after emails he sent before being hired in 2018 contained racist, homophobic, and misogynistic comments. With the the end of John Gruden's career there and a lot of drama, how did you handle all of that? How tough did it get for you guys? I mean, yeah, it was, I mean, it was tough. I mean, if any season taught me the most about life and just how I should approach the game in my career, it was last year, you know, because things can always happen around you. You don't really know if you have peace in your life until 
things are really falling down around you and it's like really, you know, a lot of storms, a lot of adversity, that's when you know. So um, and I feel like that didn't drive me to any extreme measures or extreme thought processes, you know. So those emails that led to Gruden's firing, they were between Gruden and former Washington Commanders President Bruce Allen. And they just contained a slew of racist, bigoted language and slurs. When all of this surfaced, Gruden drew a lot of criticism, including from former wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson. That email was very disturbing. It's unacceptable. And this is why in this country, we are in a position that we are in as human beings, not only human beings, but as African-Americans. Because we gloss over these sort of things and act like it's not that big of a deal. Gruden has apologized for the emails and recently said he's ashamed of them, but that he's a good person and he hopes to coach again. He's now actually suing the NFL, saying he was, quote, forced to resign and he's accused the league of trying to destroy his career. Players like Waller, who know Gruden, have been processing this in their own ways. You know, one of the things that we learned in all those emails that we read from Coach Gruden, there, you know, there's a, a racist stereotype that he used. Did that sting personally? Uh, it didn't sting for me personally, honestly. I don't know, man. I, 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 I tend to see things from a, a standpoint of compassion these days, you know. That doesn't mean I condone certain things, but I don't know. I just try to see where people are coming from more now. And it's like, you see Gruden and it's like, you know, the way that he interacted with us, interacted with a lot of, you know, people, like, you can tell there's no, like, real motive to of hatred towards us or anything like that like he's taking us all in and giving giving a lot of us opportunities and i'm always gonna be grateful for that and you know you kind of look at a situation like is he you know just cracking jokes like that might be his way of coping or his way of being seen as cool the same way when i was a young kid trying to find ways to fit in with the groups that i was socializing in so it's like i try to look at things from that standpoint like why like why is he doing that like what would make sense like as to why he would think that's okay, especially when, you know, you see that he has a good heart on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, it didn't really sting for me. It just stung more so to see, like, okay, like, why does he do this? Like, what what does this do for him? And just try to see it from his shoes. Could you understand why some people would have been, been hurt by some of those words? Absolutely. Yeah, because there's, I mean, you look back over hundreds of years and, you know, how that kind of language was used in, artworks and all that other stuff to just, you know, shame colored people, you know, and that's just is what it is. And that's why it's like, it's not okay. But, you know, as far as Coach Gruden, it's like, I realize it's not okay, but at some point you got to stop like beating people over the head and just punishing and try to help those people, help them grow, help them learn, help them understand and just have those conversations with them. Instead of just being like, all right, no, get, get out of here. Like, you're done. Like, boom. Like, how about like, you can't do that because this is why you can't use that language because this is why. And, you know, why do you feel like you need to talk to your friends and joke like this in secret? Like let's have that conversation and then be like, okay, let's see what he learns from that. And I don't agree with cancel culture. I'd love to go back to when you were a teenager. Do you remember the first time you, you started using, using drugs and and what, what your thinking was and, and where your head was at the time? Yeah. I have friends that, were uh, taking pills out of the parents' medicine cabinet and they were like, you know, this will make you feel good. I took it and it made me feel good. So I was doing those for the next 
10 years. And it was just like the break from the anxiety and paranoia and worry and fear that I was already feeling so strongly at the age of 15. And it also allowed me to like make friends with people like the cool crowds that I wanted to be in and stuff like that. So it was all about, you know, being seen like that and also just essentially numbing out my inner world. I think it's so hard for us to see someone as successful as you are now, as great as you are, an extraordinary athlete, and think that you have such vulnerability that you needed to to use for, you know, as a teenager and through those years. I mean, what what was missing inside? What was in that inner world that 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 was missing something? I mean, I guess it was just like like self confidence I was missing, just having an identity that was separate from what people thought of me and what I did and how I performed and the activities that I was involved in. Cause it was always just like, you know, Oh, I'll be accepted when I'm good at football. And you know, when people like me and want to be around me, instead of just being like, I accept myself, I love myself as I am, you know? And I don't know, those kind of things weren't really a thing back then. They weren't really mental health. Wasn't really talked about all that much, you know, it was just like self-awareness and self-love and gratitude and all that stuff. Those weren't things back then you and you know, it was a lot of environments of like, tough it out. Like, don't let them see you sweat, you know, you don't cry, be a man, all this stuff that, you know, no longer serves me to this day. So it's like a lot of things that I was clinging to, a lot of philosophies, a lot of ideas that were more so tearing me down and, you know, harming me than building me up. You, you once said um, that when you were a kid, people would look at me with my skin color and rag on me. What, can you talk more about what you mean by that and why, why those things are, were related? Well, I mean, there's just like this image of how black people should act and how they should dress and how they should talk and how they should move around and music they should listen to at all, at all times. And I was just like, I never really fit in all those boxes, you know? And it was mainly because like the friends I first made were in my neighborhood and they were white. So I was just hanging around them a lot just because we all did the same things that we like to just play sports outside and ride bikes and, do a bunch of crazy stuff. But people of my skin color would be like, well, why are you hanging out with them? Why do you talk like that? Why do you like school? Why do you listen to this music that's not rap music? Like, you're weird, you're different. As a kid, you don't think that that means like, oh, I'm great, I'm unique, I'm, you know, I'm meant to stand out. You're like, you want to be like everybody else. You want to just fit in and just be liked, you know? I always felt like, like, what the fuck? Like, how, how come, why am I so different? What's wrong with me? And that just kind of became like the narrative in my mind. So it sounds like the drugs were like a way to escape an, an identity crisis in, in many ways. Yep. Drugs, just a symptom. When you took the drugs out the picture, like first month I was sober, like I was still fearful. I was still like envious of other people. I took drugs out of the picture, not drinking anymore. Like, why am I still like miserable? Because that was, I, I went to the drugs and alcohol for a reason. And you had to go to that underlying reason in order to really have freedom and to, you know, actually have peace in your life because like there's a term like in meetings like a dry drunk. It's like, yeah, they're not drinking, but now they just get drunk off their anger or self-pity or, you know, emotions. Is there a lesson there for all of us? Like either those of us who deal with um, addiction ourselves or people like myself who who have people in in my life who, who struggle with addiction. Like I, I feel like it it can be so frustrating because you're always like, trying to help someone and say like, you should stop, you should go to rehab, you should get a handle on yourself. But 
I don't know. There's something about your journey where I'm like so struck by you just had to come to something on your own and make the decision yourself. And I, I wonder if there's some kind of lesson there that we could learn from. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't believe in, or I, I just don't think it's effective to tell people you got to do this or why are you doing that? Or you shouldn't do this. It's because I don't know, you're just going to build the walls up that are already existing around them. You know, I feel like the only solution that you can do for somebody is to just love them until they decide for themselves. You know, at the end of the day, they got to get sick of their own mess. You know, they got to get sick of the, the way that they react to life or the way that, you know, basically their insanity of thinking they can do the same things and that results will be different. Like they have to get sick of that themselves because until they get sick of that, like nobody can do it for them. I just feel like you just love people in the process, let them know that they're still valuable and they still mean something in the process. But yeah, eventually at the end, they have to decide for themselves or, you know, otherwise it'll just be kind of the same cycle. Do you have to hit a low point to get to that moment when you realize that you need, need to help yourself? I don't necessarily think it has to be like this dramatic, like devastating rock bottom. It could be, you know, like we talked to, uh, this dude, John Gordon, on our podcast, Comeback Stories, and he was just talking about how, you know, just his relationship with his wife was deteriorating, and that was enough for him to kind of, you know, snap out. And so um, I don't think it, t- it takes that. Some people like me, I've always had to learn things the hard way. I've always had to, you know, get kind of humbled and kind of beat down a little bit by circumstances. But I don't think it takes you getting that far. It just has to, you know, be at what point are you convicted by you know, the way that you're living or the way that you're, what your current level of character is because, you know, addiction will corrupt your character from the inside out. What was your moment? What was your moment of, of conviction? As far as being willing to change, it was uh, overdosing on pills in my Jeep 2017. That was the first moment where I realized, like, I'm not, I thought I was in control and just how much of an illusion that was. Like, I'm not in control. I'm actually being controlled. This was after you were suspended for a year by the NFL, right? Like a couple months later? Two months later, yep. I was about to just move home from Baltimore with my parents. And then I was just like, you know, I'm just about to pick up one more time before I leave. It wasn't like I had plans on stopping. You know, I was just doing what I was normally doing. But in Baltimore, there had been, I'd heard chirpings of like people pressing pills and it, it, it could be fentanyl. You think it's you're getting something that you usually get, but it's something different. That's what got me that day. So you're in your Jeep using, what, what's your memory? I mean, it's just like somebody pulled a power plug from behind the TV. TV just went black. That's all, that's all I remember. You know, like I was in the car. I pulled up to the grocery store. I was going to, like, get some beer and, like, some food. But I snorted some pills on the way. And then, like, once I got to the parking lot, it kind of kicked in. And it kicked in, like, an overdrive. And I was about to get out of the car. But I felt like I was just going to pass out, fall out on the ground, and just make a scene. I was like, I don't need to do that. So I just stayed in the car. What do you remember from waking up? I just wait, remember waking up being scared, being like covered in sweat. And it's just like super thick beads of sweat. My body just felt super weird. And I was just like, fuck, like I can't be not like, and now this shit is like, I always, like I said, I always thought I was in control and you know that, and the thinking makes you think like, oh, it's always going to be like those first few times where you got high. and It was just like beautiful and nothing bad can happen. And it's just like, now it's just like all bad things are happening because of it. And and there's just like that point where I was like, I got sick of my own shit, basically. We're back right after this break. 
I could ask you about a million moments from your rehab and, and, uh, and kind of fight back. Um, the one that stands out to me is the work you were doing. You, you took a job um, stocking produce at, at a grocery store. Were you wondering if you'd ever play football again? Were you wondering if you'd ever make it to the NFL again? Like, what were you feeling? Uh, when I took that job, I had no desire to play football. I was just trying to regain structure in my life because I felt like going to rehab was a good start. And it was like, okay, like I need things to do, things to work out. And my parents had a connection to somebody they went to church with as far as working at Sprouts. And yeah, I was just a grocery clerk. And yeah, but yeah, at that time I was not trying to play football. I was working out, like going to the gym and stuff, just trying to, you know, be healthy and whatnot. But yeah, I wasn't thinking about football for probably the first six months of me being suspended and being sober i think about someone who's who's working in a totally different kind of job you know at at a store um thinking they're not in football at all and then you fast forward a few years and i mean december 6 2020 (laughs) playing the jets we might have seen one of the best performances on the field by a tight end in in the history of the nfl how do you go from from one moment to the other there that's like i said that's why every all these moments are so you know, surreal, honestly, because it's just like, like you can't even make this kind of stuff up. But, um, you know, you hear the cliches of like recovery was like one day at a time. And I got like, just for today on my wrist, you know, it makes life simple and it removes a lot of worry and anxiety for things. It's like, I got a lot on my plate. Well, I can do it. I just, I just focus, I focus, I can do things one day at a time. I can show up tomorrow and do that day. And it's like, and it translates to the field where it's like, I can do my assignment and I can win my matchup or make a play, I can make one play and, you know, make one more play. And then it's like on a day like that, where it's like, you kind of look up, I didn't even know my stats. Like you just kind of look up or you get back to the locker room. Somebody's like, well, you had 200 yards. And I was like, man, I wouldn't even think about that. I was just, you know, trying to make one play and then one play and then one play and then one play. And it's like that kind of stems from my rehab and current recovery process of just, you know, keeping things simple and just staying present right here, you know, and not being, taking a whole bunch of different directions on my mind. That's so interesting what you just said, because it, it sounds like the addiction and the recovery you're saying has made you a better football player. 1,000%. In what way? How, how does that work? In a book that we read in meetings, it's like the, the guy who wrote the book says, you know, there's 12 steps. Like, you can go to 12-step meetings, there's 12 steps, but only one of the steps talk about drinking or talk about drugs. Like, the other 12 are basically reshaping your character putting, you know, honesty into your life and integrity and courage and selflessness. And, you know, and so it just, it just changes your whole perspective and your living and your thinking. Um, and you can just appreciate, you know, uncomfortable moments or moments that may seem mundane or, you know, like, uh, why am I doing this? Like practice and drills and training and stuff like that. But now it's like, I see those as building blocks and every moment matters to what the end product is going to be. So yeah, it shapes it just reshapes your whole uh, philosophy. And then that allows me to go out in the field and trust the work that I've done, and to just be calm and to stay present and not be you know. Cause a lot of guys can get anxious about a lot of things. You know, they got to provide for their family or they got to you know do all these things. And to me, I'm just out there like you know, how do I do what I do one play at a time and just you know try to have fun while I'm doing it and not make it anything more than it has to be. You showed me a wrist. Did you get a new tattoo? Is that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I got it not, not too long ago, probably a little over a year ago. Okay, what's it say? It says, just for today. Just for today. And what? why do you need to remind yourself of that? 
I mean, you don't, you're not promised nothing past today. What happened yesterday doesn't matter. Worrying about the future too much will take you out of the positive that you can do right where you're at. So just something I can look at and just keep me grounded. I know you've, you've talked before about not loving the game through a lot of your life, even though you were playing the game of football. Do you love the game now? I do love the playing of the game, you know. When I'm out there on the field and just, just pure football being played, yeah, I enjoy that a lot. I'm glad that I can return to a place where I can do that. Because uh, like you said before, I didn't really enjoy it. There's a lot of other things, you know. You get caught up in, like, trying to impress coaches and GMs and all this other stuff. And uh, you throw, get in trouble in the mix on top of it. And then, you know, you start getting treated differently because of that. So it makes it a lot less fun when all you're trying to do is just please others. and But now it's like the game is what I make of it. And it has, doesn't have to be predicated on results and stats and I'm all pro this or I'm the best this in the game. Like that kind of stuff doesn't give me any kind of fuel or resonate with me anymore. It's just did I enjoy living life <laughs> at the end of the day. So And did I try to leave an impact that's bigger than me? So I just focus on those things. With your organization now in Las Vegas, Sin City, I'm so curious for someone who has, has struggled with alcohol and drugs. Like, is that city a temptation in some way? Like, would it, would it be better for someone who is recovering to be in, in a place without so much uh, temptation? Um, I mean, I thought the same thing when I first moved here. But, I mean, it's really just a matter of perspective. Like, now, like, I feel like, in a way, I'm somebody that, you know, has a voice in the city and is, like, really trying to make a change. I've met a lot of great people, have great relationships that are in recovery and in sobriety. So it's like, you know, looking at it, it's like, oh, man, being in Vegas, you know, being sober, like the temptation. But it's like, you know, when you do the work on the inside of you, those things that used to tempt you just don't tempt you anymore. They don't even seem remotely attractive. And when you have community around you that keeps you on that similar path, and they don't allow you to, to slip and they keep you in the work that's got you here. I couldn't think of a better place to be, honestly. I can't let you go without asking about your your podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Comeback Stories. Darren Waller here, my man Donnie Starkins to my left. You're into season two of Comeback Stories. And I guess my question, like the word comeback can be seen as so cliche in sports. We hear it all the time. They're comeback players of the year. They're comeback stories. And you dig so deeply and yet get into to personal lives. Like what have you been learning talking to so many people about a comeback from the, those conversations you're having from your own story that that might be surprising to us or that we might not think about. We have these successful people on there and it really just goes to show you that a lot of people may not be able to relate to the amazing feats that these people may do or how much money they make or the accomplishments that they have, but they can relate to like their struggles and their weaknesses. Like we all, as if we share anything on a common level as all human beings, it's adversity. You know, whether people choose to talk about it, share on it, we all face it. So we just want to have use this platform in a way to be like, to show these people like, hey, I'm here, like I'm successful. You guys see me like I'm superhuman, but I'm human too. Like I struggle with all types of things. We got Michael Phelps as raw as he was. It was just unbelievable to hear. And a lot of normal people like that may not be able to relate to having 23 gold medals around their neck. They can relate to the anxiety and the depression that he was feeling and going through. And so it's like, we feel like that's important because that goes a much longer way than Raiders on the Super Bowl in Vegas. That's great. Like people are going to be on fire. It's going to be awesome. 
But as far as their lives really truly being changed, they can be inspired by maybe their favorite athlete or somebody they admire saying, you know, life sucked for me for a lot of the time or it's, it's been rough for me. It still is rough for me. But that gives people hope to be like, OK, like I may have fallen this many times, but I can get back up and still do something about my life and make a positive change. Darren, thank you. Real pleasure. And, you know, hope your career continues on this incredible rise. And I'll be watching you as the season gets going. Yeah, thanks, David. I really I enjoyed this. That was Darren Waller of the Las Vegas Raiders. To find out about our upcoming interviews, follow Religion of Sports on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow me. I am Fearless Green. That is Fearless underscore Green with an E on the end. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps us spread the word. In the Moment is produced by Sarah McCrory. Sound design and mixing by Jocelyn Gonzalez and PRX Productions. Britt Kahn is our talent booker. Our production manager is Estella Rivas Bryant. Story research was done by Joe Levin and Ryan Hanrahan. Kevin Sullivan edited this episode and is the head of talk. Gotham Chopra, Amit Sankaran, and Adam Schlossman are our executive producers. Fearless Media is our consulting producer. And special thanks to Teresa Tran. In the Moment is a production of Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green, and we will be back next week with another athlete and their moment.